Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Morning scripture is taken from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In your pew Bible, that's on page 1861. If you're thumbing through the back of the New Testament, you're going to go past Hebrews and James to get to 1 Peter, 2 Peter. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. You may be seated. God is good. All the time. It was, when I was in uh, chorus in high school, uh, you know, we had to sing together. And sometimes there's always one person that was a little ahead or lagging a little behind. And so we, we had a little bit of lagging. That's okay, though. You still got it out. That's what matters. I will say I'm a little bothered this morning because someone slandered me in the assembly and I have to take issue with it. They looked at me and they said, that's a nice Alabama jacket you've got on. So, uh, Derek, Daniel, and Lucas, I need to acquire a UT Vols jacket. Uh, this one shall henceforth no longer be a member of SEC football season attire going forward, lest I be so falsely accused ever again. A.W. Tozer decades ago wrote this. He says, we have gotten accustomed to the blurred puffs of gray fog that pass for doctrine in churches and expect nothing better. From some previously unimpeachable sources are now coming vague statements consisting of a milky admixture of Scripture, science, and human sentiment that is true to none of its ingredients because each one works to cancel the others out. Little by little, Christians these days are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power has always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always believed and been dogmatic. We need to return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the Word of God that lives and abides forever. Now, he wrote that decades ago, and it's as relevant today as likely what it was then. And sadly, in our time, many well-meaning Christians are pluralistic. Well, you do what you do, I do what I do, and as long as we're, we're loving the Lord and doing our best, right? Some people will say this, we're all trying to get to the same place, we're just taking different roads to get there. 
Okay. When I read scripture, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When I read scripture, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved other than Jesus the Christ. This pluralistic choose and pick and you do how you want to do, it's something that's invented today in our lifetime. Maybe not invented in our lifetime, but certainly has gained traction and is elevated and almost becomes a bit of an idol to just relying on the simple and the age-old doctrines that have been handed down century to century. Peter was facing something uh, in, in Asia with the brethren there that he wished to address. There are false teachers among them. Previously, as we ended last week, uh, chapter 1, we spoke about how Jesus as a person truly existed, and not only that he existed, but how the Bible is very, very reliable. And so jumping from that, he goes on and he says, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you, who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth has been blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment hasn't been idle, and their destruction doesn't slumber. Not everyone who smiles and is kind and is nice and who teaches about Jesus is right. And sometimes we look at the sincerity of a person and we say, well, they're sincere, so that, that has to count for something. I believe that uh, Father Israel centuries ago was very sincere in his belief that his son Joseph was dead. But he'd been given bad information. And he was given that bad information. He believed it for years until Joseph reappears in his life in Egypt. And then his grief turned into rejoicing because he learned that this son that he loved, that he thought was dead for so many years, was actually alive. It's easy to be swayed by our emotions. So you can't always trust emotions, but then again, our faith isn't entirely devoid of emotions. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached the first sermon, after preaching the Word of God, we read they were pricked in the heart. That's an emotional response. And that led them to ask that important question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? So we have to measure, and yes, we do have to use a measure of discernment to determine if something is actually true or false. And there are a couple of ways that you can spot a false teacher that he outlines. First of all, is by what they teach. And in chapter 2, verse 1, one of the first things that he says, even denying the Lord who bought them. Now, I'm not entirely sure. I would probably have to reread all of Second Peter what exactly are they denying about Jesus? Are they denying his resurrection? Are they denying that he existed? Are they denying that he was indeed the Messiah? There are various truths about Jesus that are, that are necessary in order to believe. For example, you get to 1 John. And First John argues that Jesus came in the flesh. And anybody that says he didn't come in the flesh... They're false teachers, don't have anything to do with them. Now, sometimes we look at those minor details and we say, well, you know, as long as you believe in Jesus, some of these other things, you, 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 it's okay as long as you're sincere and you believe in Jesus. But what Peter shows us, what Paul shows us, what uh, uh, John shows us, is what we believe about Jesus is as important as what we believe in with regard to Jesus. 
All the way back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it is necessary to believe in the resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then what's the point of our faith? We're still living in our sins. And so I'm sitting here and I'm going, how can well-meaning Christians go, you know, I love Jesus, I believe Jesus, I obey Jesus, but he didn't really raise from the dead. Or, you know, I believe Jesus, I believe he rose from the dead, but he didn't rise from the dead. He didn't really come to the earth in flesh. John would say they're teaching false doctrine have nothing to do with him. Paul would say the same as well. Whatever they're teaching or denying about Jesus, it is an essential that the brethren in Asia believe this very thing about Jesus the Christ. Secondly, when you look at chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, they are ridiculing the second coming. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So they deny Jesus. There may be something specific about that denial, but they're also ridiculing the second coming. They lived and said the way that we actually live today. They say so much time has passed and he's not come, so he's not really going to come. And you and I take that for granted as well. Let's just be honest about it. When you read the New Testament, one of the things that was a constant theme was the impending return of Jesus. They believed it could have happened in their lifetime. And they lived as if it would. We live as if, well, centuries have passed. He hasn't come, so it won't be my lifetime. But what if it was our lifetime? What if we were the ones who didn't rise from the dead, but who were standing when the trumpet of the Lord sounds. The archangel comes, and Jesus as well, and we get to see it. What if it is in our lifetime? There are so many things that we think, oh, it could never happen to us. So many people who say, oh, not me and mine, until it happens to them and theirs. And then they're humbled, they're brought down. Some will say, well, I never thought it would happen to us. I can't tell you how many parents have said that. I never thought it would happen to us. And then we raised our children in the church. We took them every Sunday, every Wednesday. They went to Bible camp, they, this, that, and the other. And you talk about all the things that they did, but we can't mistake activity for a sincere devotion. You and I can be as busy as the day is long, but that doesn't say anything necessarily about our devotion to the Lord. As a matter of fact, the busier we are, the easier it is to fall into busyness and forget the reason that we're doing what we're doing. The Ephesians did that very thing. So in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus rebuked them, he says, this I have against you that you have left your first love. Now he commended them for being sound in doctrine, for defending the truth. And that's great. That's what you should do. But what he criticized was you've left your first love. You've gotten away from that infant love of Jesus, of God, and you've busied yourselves. Busyness does not always equal good devotion. So we've got to be careful about that. So when you see people that deny Jesus, if it is an orthodox uh, or sound teaching doctrine about Jesus... 
that He did come in the flesh, that He was crucified, that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He rose from the dead, that He now sits at the right hand of the Father serving as our high priest. People deny those. They're false teachers. Scripture clearly teaches that there's going to be a second coming. We look around our world and we see all the injustices that occur. And there's so many things that anger us about these injustices. Why some people seem to get away with X, Y, and Z crimes while innocents are made to suffer. These things are frustrating. But God's going to make everything right at His second coming. He's going to make everything right. And you know what? We have to be ready for that second coming because if we are not found to be in Christ at the second coming, we're one of the ones that's going to be made right. But yet when we believe and have faith in Jesus, when we confess Him as God's Son, as our Lord, when we put on Christ in baptism to have our sins washed away and we live our lives faithfully to Him as we can, thankfully... The judgment has already been incurred by Jesus. And so we can be grateful for that. I don't have to be as worried about the judgment of God because Jesus bore that judgment on the cross as long as I'm faithful. So they deny Jesus. They ridiculed the second coming. You can always tell a false teacher by their teachings. So this is why it's important that you and I know what is authentic so that we can spot the fake. I read a story years ago, and I think I actually had this confirmed. I won't say who because they may have been a a, a government spy, and I don't want to out them here in the live stream. But the Secret Service, you know the Secret Service began as a counterfeiting agency. They, they, They didn't start as the protection of the president. It was all about counterfeit currencies. And so throughout that time, they were studying what was the actual currency, what was the authentic minted from the Federal Reserve currency. Because if they knew the authentic, they could spot the fake. And I'm worried that we don't know the authentic well enough that we can spot the fake. I can only answer for me. I can't answer for you. But ask yourself that question. Do I know the authentic well enough that a fake is easily spotted? I got to tell you, my day was made a couple weeks ago. Um... I was, uh, I was at a stoplight right here at McDonald's, and I'm sitting there. I listen to podcasts. I don't listen to radio, so I was listening to one of my podcasts, and I thought I heard someone yelling, hey, sir, and I looked over, and there were these two, two young boys. They were in this car, and they belonged to a religious organization, and uh, so I rolled my window down and cut off. I'm like, yes. They said, hey, we just want to tell you Jesus loves you, and your truck is sick. I'm like, thank you. I'm like, by the way, I'm a preacher and I know Jesus loves. And when I said I'm a preacher, I've never seen anyone respond this way. They were like, oh, yeah. And I thought, I thought, well, that has made my day. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you talk about if you ever needed a pick me up, I got me a pick me up right there in my pick em up truck. So, okay, that was corny. I know. Let it go. Secondly, you can also tell a false teacher by their behavior. Look at verse 10 with me, if you would, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, 
Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. We're going to the next verse. But these, like natural beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Now, in order to understand the lust of uncleanness that Peter's alluding to, we have to read verses 4 through 9, which builds right into this. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the, uh, on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward who live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot who was opposed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now there is a particular interpretation when it comes to what Peter says about the angels. Uh, all the way back in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4, there is the mention of the sons of God sleeping with the daughters of man. And the way that the Jews understood it, and, and I referenced them because I think this is how Peter is presenting this, they believed that the sons of God were angels and that the Nephilim that are subsequently mentioned were the giants. Now, in the Greek Old Testament, this is why I say this, the word put in the place of sons of God is the word angel. And the word put in the place of Nephilim is the word giants. Now, remember, 70 Jewish rabbis created the Greek Old Testament because they were sent forth from Alexandria, Egypt, and every major work throughout the ancient world was translated into Greek. So those rabbis, those Jewish rabbis, they translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, and those are the words that they choose to use. So the belief was, in that period, angels came down, they consorted with women, they gave birth to a race of giants, and this sexual immorality, this fornication, was a part of what brought about God's judgment on the world. But in all those unrighteous people, you have Noah who was righteous. Then you go to Sodom and Gomorrah where again sexual immorality existed, where there was likely rape, where there was likely sodomy and the like. And because of that, God judged that city. So these false teachers that are among you, God is going to judge. But remember Lot, how he was the righteous one and he was delivered. You who are righteous shall be delivered from the judgment. But you can tell the false teachers, not only by their doctrine, but by their behavior, if they also act as these two acted with sexual promiscuity, uh, immorality, and the like, they are showing that they are false. Because they engage in the same band of immorality as the angels and the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Secondly, they despised authority in verse 10. Now, if Paul, excuse, Peter's going to get me. I've called him Paul more times than I should have. If Peter has in mind either Jesus, the apostles, or maybe someone whose spirit inspired to lead, or the elders of the church, I, I'm not altogether clear. I know from 1 Peter chapter 5, he addressed the elders of the church. So that may be who he has in mind in addition to Jesus, the apostles, and so forth. 
Now, in our time, we have our elders. We do lack the apostles, the prophets, and the teachers that they may have had then, but in their place, we have the Holy Bible. Now, there are some things that are not altogether clear that it would be nice, Jay and I were talking about, be nice to have someone with that inspiration to go, hey, would you clarify this for me? But as much as we understand, we can live faithfully to the Lord. And obviously, one who is leading a lustful life, one who despises authority, is showing that very thing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I was trained, raised, programmed, whatever word you want to use, to show certain groups respect. And the first were teachers. I made a mistake one time. I say a mistake. I, I say it because of the consequences of the mistake and the fact that uh, the punishment caused me to never want to make that mistake again. I was in the line. We had this later. My name was Mrs. Jones. I remember her. But she would sit with her little pad as we were lining up after lunch to leave, and she always had this look. And she was writing names down and crimes and so forth. And, you know, I was a pretty good kid except for the moments that I wasn't. And, and, and she said something, and I shot back. Well, so I go on to class, you know, think nothing of it. And then uh, Miss Jones comes to class a few minutes later, and she says, I need Stephen Hunter in the office. And so I'm like, all right, I'm hippity-hoppity all the way down to the office because I'm like, I get a break from this. And I get in there and they say, you have a phone call. All right. I pick up the phone. It was my retired police captain, granddaddy, who used to work vice. He rode with hell's angels undercover in narcotics busts. He was not the gentlest little lamb there was. And he began verbally tearing into me for disrespecting a teacher. I'm sorry, granddaddy. I immediately went to tears because of... He was using that police voice. I've never heard him use it. And so I apologized and I cried all the way back to the class. But when you're in the fifth grade, you know, uh, things pass and you move on to another moment. Well, then I'm home. I was always the first home. So I get home and I'm playing outside. Da, 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 da. Mom opens the door and she goes, hey, Stephen, come inside for a second. Yes, ma'am. Here I go back into the house. Now, when you open the front door, the front door fit into a hallway. And so there was a hallway behind that front door that went down to the bedrooms. And so I walk in and I pull the door to and daddy's standing there and all of a sudden my rear end is on fire because mama is whipping me. Yeah, you get in trouble at school, you get in trouble at home. And I got in trouble at home and we were going to my aunt and uncle's that night and my mom said, you're gonna sit there, you're not gonna play with your cousins. Your cousins are like your first best friends, right? And you, you got to play with your cousins. So respect teachers. That was the first group I was taught to respect. And sometimes you have to get out of, out of line a little bit just to know how serious mom and dad may be about that respect. There was one occasion where another little boy and I got into some trouble together. Actually, we didn't like each other. We were, you know, fighting and anyway, our parents were called in to meet with the teacher and the principal and so forth. And of course, when it happened, I went home and I told my parents, here's what happened, here's what went down, and I got in trouble, you know. Because the rule was, Daddy told me, he said, you'd rather that I hear it from you than somebody else. So I often 
would go tell on myself as soon as I got home. Because if they heard from the school rather than me first, that was bad. So anyway, so we go in and, and I'm in trouble. This other little boy's in trouble. By this time, we're like, well, we're friends now, you know, because <laughs> that's what you did. When you're little boys and you get in a scuffle, you get it over with and then you're like best buddies. Daddy asked me to step outside the room and, and the, the other little boy as well. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s, somehow or another, this came up in conversation. And he said, do you know why I asked y'all to step out of the room? No, sir. Why did you? He said, because those teachers were being unfair to you and I was chewing them out. He said, but I'd have never done that in front of you because you were still going to respect the authority. Teachers, police officers, elders, yes, of the church, but you're the elderly. I remember as a child once I corrected somebody older than me and I got in trouble for it. You're a kid, you don't correct an adult, no matter how wrong they are. I didn't know that. And I still sometimes am a little timid about it, even as an adult. But these are the ones, your parents, you respected them. These are the people that you were supposed to show respect to. And if you live a life rejecting, despising authority, that says you're a false teacher. Third, they were speaking evil of, it says here in verse 10, dignitaries. Uh, literally, the term could be translated glories. And I think he may have had angels in mind because of what follows uh, in, in the, uh, the next verse. Because uh, he mentions, whereas angels, verse 11, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation of them before the Lord. So these folks, they are speaking evil of uh, uh, probably the angels, the celestial beings, but the angels won't bring an accusation against them to the Lord. So they also behave like beasts. There is a belief in the ancient world that you have your rational self and your bestial self. That is what sets us apart from animals. The bestial side of every person acts on impulse but your rational self holds those lusts in check. That's why you exercise self-control. But when you just act carelessly, you're nothing more than a beast. And in the following verses, he points out exactly what that behavior is. Verse 13, they'll receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart, trained in covetous practices, and are accursed children. So they don't keep themselves in check. They act with wanton abandonment, and keep, keep going on with me. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So the false prophets, the false teachers, they act like beasts. They act like Balaam, but then you have a dumb beast who's setting right the human who ought to behave himself. These are wells without waters, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I believe in God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the life-giving Holy Spirit. I believe Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, 
that he was sentenced and crucified under Pontius Pilate, and that he rose on the third day. I believe that Jesus rose to the right hand of God where he now reigns and acts as our high priest. I believe in the one true church that Jesus promised to establish. I believe he gave the authority to the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, and the leaders of the local congregations. I believe he gave us his inspired word, the Bible, as our only source with matters of faith and practice. I believe scripture teaches that everyone must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, that there is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. I believe Jesus is the only way to the Father. And when a person who believes in Jesus is willing to confess that, repent of their sins, and be immersed in water to have their sins washed away, as Scripture says, I believe God saves a person. We as Christians shouldn't justify sin, and we shouldn't act as judges since judgment belongs only to God. We should conform ourselves to the person of Jesus as best we can. We should pray. We should read Scripture. We should gather with God's people to worship Him in the splendor of holiness, how He wants to be worshipped, not how we feel about how the worship is. And when He comes, by His grace and mercy, we will go home with Him to dwell forever, to have eternal life when He comes to judge the world. Because if I am in Christ, He has borne my judgment. And if the Lord wills, He will save me on that day. Do not be afraid, nor as Paul would say, do not be ashamed of what it is you believe. A lot of people are very vocal about what they believe, and it's a bunch of stuff that you and I don't agree with, that God doesn't agree with. God may even call it sinful, but they are loud. Why are we silent? I'm not saying get in a fight, get in an argument. Why don't you and I as confidently declare what it is we believe? Because everybody else is. And as long as we remain silent, that will be the narrative. The apostles prayed for boldness with which to speak. Perhaps you and I need to say that same prayer to have boldness to speak with humility in love to declare our faith in Jesus, the Savior of heaven and earth. If you wish to obey the invitation that we offer to you, to be born again of water and spirit, to have your sins washed away, to make Jesus your Lord, you'll have the opportunity to do so. But also if you're a Christian and you think, you know, I'm not done well like I should have. I need to do better. That's probably a category most of us could fit into. But if you wish to have the prayers of your brothers and sisters in this congregation, uh, you're welcome to do so as well. There's a judgment-free zone on these first two pews. Uh, as you can tell, no one wants to sit in them because we are tempted to judge, aren't we? Now they're really just afraid I might spit. They're in spitting range. But in all seriousness, if you wish to respond to the invitation, just come to the front as we stand and sing.